Section 7 of The Wallet of Kai Lung by Ernest Brahma. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 1 The Transmutation of Ling, Part 7. Between Si Chow and the village of Ki, in a house completely hidden from travelers by the tall and black trees which surrounded it, lived an aged and very wise person whose ways and manner of living had become so distasteful to his neighbors that they at length agreed to regard him as a powerful and ill-disposed magician. In this way it became a custom that all very unseemly deeds committed by those who, in the ordinary course, would not be guilty of such behavior, should be attributed to his influence, so that justice might be effected without persons of assured respectability being put to any inconvenience. Apart from the feeling which resulted from this just decision, the uncongenial person in question had become exceedingly unpopular on account of certain definite actions of his own, as that of causing the greater part of Si Chow to be burned down by secretly breathing upon the seven sacred water jugs to which the town owned its prosperity and freedom from fire. Furthermore, although possessed of many tales, and able to produce such food as to be found upon the tables of mandarins, he selected from choice dishes of an objectionable nature. He had been observed to eat eggs of unbecoming freshness, and the Si Chow official printed leaf made it public that he had, on excessively hot occasion, openly partaken of cow's milk. It is not a matter of wonder, therefore, that when unnaturally loud thunder was heard in the neighborhood of Si Chow, the more ignorant and credulous persons refused to continue in any description of work until certain ceremonies connected with rice spirit and the adherence to a reclining position for some hours had been conscientiously observed as a protection against evil. Not even the most venerable person in Si Chow could remember the time when the magician had not lived there, and as there existed no written record narrating the incident, it was with well-founded probability that he was said to be incapable of death. Contrary to the most general practice, although quite unmarried, he had adopted no son to found a line which would worship his memory in future years, but had instead brought up and caused to be educated in the most difficult varieties of embroidery, a young girl to whom he referred, for want of a more suitable description, as the daughter of his sister, although he would admit without hesitation, when closely questioned, that he had never possessed a sister, at the same time, however, alluding with some pride to many illustrious brothers who had all obtained distinction in various employments. Few persons of any high position penetrated into the house of the magician, and most of these retired with inelegant haste on perceiving that no domestic altar embellished the great hall. Indeed, not to make concealment of the fact, the magician was a person who had entirely neglected the higher virtues in an avaricious pursuit of wealth. In that way, all his time and a very large number of tales had been expended testing results by means of the four elements, and putting together things which had been inadequately arrived at by others. It was confidently asserted in Si Chow that he possessed every manner of printed leaf which had been composed in whatever language, and all the most precious charms, including many snakeskins of more than ordinary rarity, and the fang of a black wolf which had been stung by seven scorpions. On the death of his father, the magician had become possessed of great wealth, yet he contributed little to the funeral obsequies, nor did any suggestion of a durable and expensive nature conveyed his enlightened name and virtues down to future times cause his face to become gladdened. 
in order to preserve greater secrecy about the enchantments which he certainly performed, he employed only two persons within the house, one of whom was blind and the other deaf. In this ingenious manner he hoped to receive attention and yet be unobserved, the blind one being unable to see the nature of the incantations which he undertook, and the deaf one being unable to hear the words. In this, however, he was unsuccessful, as the two persons always contrived to be present together, and to explain to one another the nature of the various matters afterwards, but as they were of somewhat deficient understanding, the circumstance was unimportant. It was with more uneasiness that the magician perceived one day that the maiden whom he had adopted was no longer a child. As he desired secrecy above all things until he should have completed the one important matter for which he had labored all his life, he decided with extreme unwillingness to put into operation a powerful charm toward her which would have the effect of diminishing all her attributes until such time as he might release her again. Owing to his reluctance in the matter, however, the magic did not act fully, but only in such a way that her feet became naturally and without binding the most perfect and beautiful in the entire province of Hunan, so that ever afterwards she was called Pan Fei Mian, in delicate reference to that empress whose feet were so symmetrical that a golden lily sprang up wherever she trod. Afterwards the magician made no further essay on the matter, chiefly because he was ever convinced that the accomplishment of his desire was within his grasp. The rumors of our men in the neighborhood of Si Chow threw the magician into an unendurable condition of despair. To lose all, as would most assuredly happen if he had to leave his arranged rooms and secret preparations and take to flight, was the more bitter because he felt surer than ever that success was even standing by his side. The very subtle liquid which would mix itself into the components of the living creature which drank it, and by an insidious and harmless procedure so worked that, when the spirit departed, the flesh would become resolved into a figure of pure and solid gold of the finest quality, had engaged the refined minds of many of the most expert individuals of remote ages. With most of these inspired persons, however, the search had been undertaken in pure-minded benevolence, their chief aim being an honorable desire to discover a method by which one's ancestors might be permanently and effectively preserved in a fit yet becoming manner to receive the worship and veneration of posterity. Yet in spite of these amiable motives, and of the fact that the magician merely desired the possession of the secret to enable him to become excessively wealthy, the affair had been so arranged that it should come into his possession. The matter which concerned Mian in the dark wood, when she was only saved by the appearance of the person who was already known as Ling, entirely removed all pleasurable emotions from the magician's mind, and on many occasions he stated in a definite and systematic manner that he would shortly end an ignoble career which seemed to be destined only to gloom and disappointment. In this way an important misunderstanding arose, for when two days later, during the sound of matchlock firing, the magician suddenly approached the presence of Mian with an uncontrollable haste and an entire absence of dignified demeanor, and fell dead at her feet without expressing himself on any subject whatever, she deliberately judged that in this manner he had carried his remark into effect, nor did the closed vessel of yellow liquid which he held in his hand seem to lead away from this decision. In reality, the magician had fallen owing to the heavy and conflicting emotions which success had engendered in an intellect already greatly weakened by his continual disregard of the higher virtues. For the bottle, indeed, 
contained the perfection of his entire life study, the very expensive and three times purified gold liquid. On perceiving the magician's condition, Mian at once called for the two attendants, and directed them to bring from an inner chamber all the most effective curing substances, whether in the form of powder or liquid. When these proved useless, no matter in what way they were applied, it became evident that there could be very little hope of restoring the magician, yet so courageous and grateful for the benefits which she had received from the person in question was Mian, that in spite of the uninviting dangers of the enterprise, she determined to journey to Key to invoke the assistance of a certain person who was known to be very successful in casting out malicious demons from the bodies of animals and from casks and barrels, in which they frequently took refuge, to the great detriment of the quality of the liquid placed therein. Not without many hidden fears, Mian set out on her journey, greatly desiring not to be subjected to an encounter of a nature similar to the one already recorded. For in such a case she could hardly again hope for the inspired arrival of the one whom she now often thought of in secret as the well-formed and symmetrical young sword-user. Nevertheless, an event of equal significance was destined to prove the wisdom of the well-known remark concerning thoughts which are occupying one's intellect, and the unexpected appearance of a very formidable evil spirit. For as she passed along quickly, yet with so dignified a motion that the moss received no impression beneath her footsteps, she became aware of a circumstance which caused her to stop by imparting to her mind two definite and greatly dissimilar emotions. In a grassy and open space, on the verge of which she stood, lay the dead bodies of seventeen rebels, all disposed in very degraded attitudes, which contrasted strongly with the easy and becoming position adopted by the eighteenth one who bore the unmistakable emblems of the imperial army. In this brave and noble-looking personage, Mian at once saw her preserver, and not doubting that an inopportune and treacherous death had overtaken him, she ran forward and raised him in her arms, being well assured that, however indiscreet such an action might appear in the case of an ordinary person, the most select maiden need not hesitate to perform so honorable a service in regard to the one whose virtues had by that time undoubtedly placed him among the three thousand pure ones. Being disturbed in this providential manner, Ling opened his eyes, and faintly murmuring, Oh, sainted and adorable Kunyam, goddess of charity, intercede for me with Buddha. He again lost possession of himself in the middle air. At this remark, which plainly proved Ling to be still alive, in spite of the fact that both the maiden and the person himself had thoughts to the contrary, Mian found herself surrounded by a variety of embarrassing circumstances, among which occurred a remembrance of the dead magician and the wise person at Key whom she had set out to summon. But on considering the various natural and sublime laws which bore directly on the alternative before her, she discovered that her plain destiny was to endeavor to restore the breath in the person who was still alive rather than engage on the very unsatisfactory chance of attempting to call it back to the body from which it had so long been absent. Having been inspired to this conclusion, which, when she later examined her mind, she found not to be repulsive to her own inner feelings, Mian returned to the house with dexterous speed, and calling together the two attendants, she endeavored by means of signs and drawings to explain to them what she desired to accomplish. Succeeding in this, after some delay, for the persons in question, being very illiterate and narrow-minded, 
were unable at first to understand the existence of any recumbent male person other than the dead magician, whom they thereupon commenced to bury in the garden with expressions of great satisfaction at their own intelligence in comprehending Mian's meaning so readily, they all journeyed to the wood, and bearing Ling between them, they carried him to the house without further adventure. End of section 7